to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called People of Hope, a study in 1 Thessalonians. In this series, we will see that even in trials, the way of Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Let me invite you, if you haven't already, take your Bible, if you brought it with you, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, we always have some underneath the seat there. Be glad if you would grab one of those. You can find this on page 958. Uh, Today, we continue our series we've been doing all fall in the letter of 1 Thessalonians called People of Hope. And if you like to use message notes, if you're following along in this series, we are learning that even in trials, Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. Uh, Last week, we kind of moved into this new section of this letter where Paul is answering some of the questions that the Thessalonians were asking him. And the first question is, what happens to people when they die before Jesus returns? And Brian did a great job explaining that. And we move into this next section where the question is, okay, when is this actually going to happen? When is Jesus actually going to return and pull people up to himself and start the new heavens and the new earth. And when I found out that I was speaking on this subject this morning, I tell you, I have spent all week trying to figure that out. I have been doing some deep equations. You can see here some of the work that I've been doing this week. (laughs) And I am so excited to tell you today, I think I have the date. You're the first people ever to hear this, so you should consider yourselves very lucky But after doing all these equations, trying to figure out when Jesus is returning, this is the date I've come up with. Well, that's my birthday. So something must have gone wrong uh, within my equation. In all seriousness, friends, you all know that the question of when Jesus is coming back is one of the great fascinations in Christian history. You can go through any era of the church, and every era had thought This is the time when Jesus is returning, and today is no different. I remember in 1988, I bet you some of you remember this, this NASA uh, engineer named Ken Wisenhunt came out with a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It was a best-selling book, and he predicted that Jesus was going to return during the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah between September 11th and 13th. The Trinity Broadcasting Network, some of you may watch that, they actually stopped their regular programming in order to help Christians prepare for the rapture. Of course, it didn't happen, and when that happened, he decided to change the date to October 3rd. When that didn't happen, he changed his date to 1989, to 1993, and then 1994. You might remember even more recently in 2014 when we had the blood moon. You guys all remember this? There were many people who thought that for sure was going to be the day when Jesus returned. But it wasn't, unless we all missed it. I don't know. But that's the question the Thessalonians want to know. It's the question so many people want to know. But if you're following on your notes, instead of telling us when, Paul shares how to prepare for it. He's not going to tell them when this is happening. He wants to help them prepare for this day. So overall, I just need to warn you, this passage is really about what is called the day of the Lord in the Bible. Sometimes I think I need to talk like James Earl Jones when I say that. The day of the Lord. 
If you've ever read through the Bible in a year or something like that, you will see this day referenced dozens of times, if not more. And so before we actually dig in to this text, let's talk a little bit about a brief synopsis about the day of the Lord. In the first century, Jews would break up, and Jesus and Paul did this, divided human history into two ages, the present age and the age to come. The age right now is the present age, it's an age of poverty and disease and war and injustice. The age to come is what we're waiting for. It's going to be a day when there will be healing and renewal at the hands of the living God. Now, here's the key for us this morning. The transition point between these two ages is this cataclysmic event called Yom Yahweh, or the day of the Lord. In the Bible, it can also be called that day, or the day of Christ, or simply referred to sometimes as the day. And if you're following on your notes, it is a day of judgment and the defeat of God's enemies. It is a day of judgment and the defeat of God's enemies. If you're still on your notes, though, you have to understand, it is also a day of salvation and the victory for all of God's people. Here are a couple verses describing what this day is going to look like. Isaiah 13, chapter nine, or verses 9 through 11 says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Maybe the most famous passage describing the day of the Lord is found in Joel chapter 2 verses 31 In 32, it says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. You can see why people thought this might be it. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Both Jesus and Peter actually quote those verses when they're talking about the day of the Lord. And as you can see, this is pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Very heavy stuff. But we need to understand that in a Hebrew worldview, this day was less about vengeance, though that is a part of it. Sometimes we think like Arnold Schwarzenegger coming down to wreak havoc. It's a lot more about healing and renewal of what has been broken. But listen, there's no doubt for that to happen at a cosmic level, evil has to go away. All evil, human evil, Evil men, evil women, evil children. We all know there are evil children out there, right? Spiritual evil. Demonic forces at war with the creator, God. Even natural evil has to be done away with, right? Things like disease and earthquakes and famine and, of course, death itself. And at the day of the Lord, God will expose evil for what it actually is. And for the first time since Adam and Eve, we will see with 2020 vision of how God intended this world to be. If you're following, God will eradicate evil from every square inch of the cosmos and destroy it forever. And so listen, all this is to say, big introduction here, the day of the Lord can either be a good thing or it can be a bad thing, depending on where you stand with God, right? For example, if you are the oppressed, is the day of judgment a good day? 
If you're being oppressed, yes, you can't wait for justice to come, justice to reign. But if you're the oppressor, is the day of the Lord a good thing? Absolutely not. You should dread it. If you're righteous, judgment is something you look forward to. I can't wait for a world full free of pain and sorrow and suffering. I want to see renewal and life. But if you are the unrighteous, if you're not living right with God, living the right way, this is a terrifying day. So on the one hand, the day of the Lord is heavy and ominous. It's this disturbing idea. There's no way around it. But for followers of Jesus, it's a day that we hopefully look forward to because with it comes the release of all that is good and beautiful and true. And that's what this passage is about right here. So let's work through this line by line, starting in verse one of chapter five, where Paul writes, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. As you can see, right, the question they're asking is when? When is this going to happen? This is a question that has been asked from this day all the way to the day today. When is this going to happen? Is it a day away? Is it a month away? Is it a thousand years away? People have been asking this for centuries. People love today still to speculate about the end times. My dad, who was a New Testament professor, used to joke around that he wished he wrote a book called Will There Be Sex in the End Times? because those are the two subjects that Christians are the most fascinated with. He'd be a millionaire. People today love to speculate and prophesy and decipher codes. Obama, of course, was the Antichrist, and your credit card is the mark of the beast, and so on and so forth. All of this, in spite of the fact, when his disciples ask him when this day will happen, Jesus himself says, I don't know. Only the Father knows the time and the dates. And so listen, if Jesus doesn't even know when this is going to happen, maybe we ought to cool it a little bit. I got to tell you, whenever somebody asks me like, oh, don't you think this means Jesus is coming soon? My stock answer has simply become, it's definitely closer today than it was yesterday. Now, Paul goes on to say here why we don't need to be preoccupied with this. Look at verse 2. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, would you read verse three out loud on your notes there with me? It says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Paul reaches way into biblical tradition and pulls out three powerful metaphors of what it's gonna be like for the wicked on this day. It'll be like a thief who comes in the night to steal. It'll be like a land that is clinging to this illusion of peace and safety while they are brutally invaded by an enemy. And it'll be like a pregnant woman who feels her first contraction. Let's break these down a little bit. Jesus uses this idea of a thief coming in the night as well. And I just wonder for us today if this has become kind of a dead metaphor in suburba, suburbia America, Right? We're not that worried about thieves anymore. We have motion sensing lights. We have alarms that we can put in our homes, but travel to other places in the world. And this is still a real reality. In fact, in Latin America, a thief forcing his way into the house is a daily anxiety. I was reading a scholar who works down there at a seminary and listen to what he wrote. There are men in our seminary's neighborhood who spend night after night in a chair with a club or machete awaiting a possible break-in how they would appreciate knowing what night and what hour the thief would come. But that's the problem. 
A thief never tells us when they're going to come and break in. And the idea that Paul's expressing here is that the day of the Lord will come, if you're following, at an unexpected time. Whenever somebody predicted Christ's return when I was a kid, I have to tell you something funny. I used to get really bummed out because I was like, now I know it's not going to happen that day. Why would they do that? Why would they ruin the potential of Jesus returning to us? Now listen, are there signs that point to this? Absolutely. We just need to be careful because it's going to happen at an unexpected time. Paul moves into a second metaphor comparing this day You know, everybody's saying peace and safety, but this enemy invades. He says, this day will come when everybody is crying out peace and safety. If you're following, the day will reveal the illusion of this world's peace and safety. I just want to pause here because what Paul is doing, we can't understand today. This is a slogan that would have been very familiar with the people in Paul's day. He's actually quoting from the Roman Empire. So if I said to you right now, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, what would you say? It's okay to say it. Does anybody live in the United States of America in this room? Okay. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is the slogan we have as Americans, right? It's the American dream. In Paul's day, the slogan, peace and safety, would, everyone would have recognized that as a slogan from Rome. Rome's claim was that it conquered the world, and it did that and brought peace and security. Remember way back to high school when you remembered about the Pax Romana? This is what Paul is referring to, and it was basically true. This was a time in human history where there was peace all throughout the Mediterranean Empire. You could travel the Roman roads with confidence. There was no civil war. Culture was at an all-time high. Same thing with commerce. The world had never seen anything like this before. By the first century, even in Thessalonica, it was a rich, thriving epicenter of culture, all of it because of the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, so much so that a few years before this letter was written to this church, they had built a statue honoring Caesar, listen, and people were to worship him as the son of God. Here is a ruin of this statue still today. Now, here's the thing. Why am I talking about this? Because when you live in a safe, prosperous thriving, cool nation, it's so easy to think it's going to last forever, right? It's easy to get sucked into the apathy and the materialism and the nowness and the hedonism. It's easy to put our hope and desire in the peace and safety of our city, of our nation, of our economic policies, of our political leaders, of our income, even in our security systems that we have at home. But Paul is saying to these Christians and us still today, don't buy the propaganda, Don't put your hope in the peace and safety of your nation or in life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. Don't hear me saying, don't be a bunch of Eeyores, right? Live in your city, thrive in your city, support your city, support your nation, but never think that is ultimately what is going to bring peace and safety. That will only come when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom forever. The final metaphor Paul uses here has to do with the suddenness of labor pains. In today's terms, we're conditioned to think not of pains, but of contractions. Now remember, this is in the first century, before the epidural. God bless it. Amen. This is a time in human history when, in all honesty, a lot of women died in childbirth. It was a scary and dangerous thing. And so Paul's point simply is, friends, the day of the Lord, if you're following will be inescapable. 
listen, if you're a pregnant woman and your water breaks, the baby is coming, whether you're ready or not. There's no way out. For some people, that is an exciting time, a beginning of a new birth, but for others, it may not be. But for everyone involved, just like a pregnant woman, that day is coming. And so as we think about the coming day, this day of reckoning, we want to be ready. Like that pregnant couple, we want to have our bags packed at the door, ready to go as soon as it happens. So how do we prepare ourselves for this day? That's what Paul spends the rest of these verses talking about. So let's look at them starting in verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Now, would you read verse six out loud on your notes there with me? So be on your guard, not asleep like others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. I see four ways we can prepare ourselves for the day of the Lord in this passage. Number one, if you're following, remember the new identity you have been given. I love what Paul writes in verse four. To you, the family of God, to you, brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, this doesn't have to be a scary day for you at all. Why? Because you're not in the darkness anymore. Isaiah wrote about this in this familiar Christmas passage, right? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This metaphor of light and darkness, it's used all throughout the Bible, but particularly in the New Testament. And I want you to remember, this is pre-light bulb days. So for them, night was a pretty scary situation. I mean, I can't imagine it being as scary for us today unless you're out in the, literally in the middle of nowhere and your car breaks down and you don't know what to do. But for them, this was a present reality. Night was where the, the demons lived. Night was where the darkness was. It was scary. Enter Jesus who says, I am the light of the world. I have come like a sunrise, and for those who receive me, you too now can walk in the light without fear. Paul, like Jesus, is dividing people into two groups of people, those who see the light and those who do not. Those who walk in the light and those who still walk in darkness. And as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are no longer in the darkness. Later, he will say, we are people of the day. I love that. What a great description. We're not people of the night or of darkness. We live on a different plane of existence because we walk in the light as he is in the light. That is our new identity in Christ. People who are in the light have a relationship with the saving God who has broken into this world's darkness and traded our unrighteousness for his righteousness. You see this clearly in verses 9 and 10. If you need a description of the gospel, here's a good one for you. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. How does that happen? He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. 
the basis of our hope, why we call this series, right? People of hope. Why can we be people of hope even when the day of the Lord happened? It's not because we have confidence that we're better than other people in this world. It's because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Your hope, my hope, is based completely on the fact that Jesus took the wrath that we deserved on that cross. He exchanged his righteousness with our unrighteousness so that we now stand before God as completely holy and righteous. And therefore, we have been given a new identity. And because of this identity, we wait with anticipation for the day when Jesus returns as king and makes everything right, everything beautiful, everything true again. Second thing Paul says that can keep us prepared is to stay alert and clear-headed. Some of you may remember this slogan a popular atheist comedian once used. He said, Jesus is coming. Everyone look busy. This is not really what this means. Think back to some of the metaphors Paul used here, right? They're all examples of what? People not being ready. People not being alert. As Christians, we're called to be alert and ready at all times. I apologize for using another sports metaphor, but that's the world I live in. So think about it like this. We're all called to be backup quarterbacks, no matter what we're doing. You know what a backup quarterback always has to be ready. You never know when they might call on you. You got to be just as prepared as the starting quarterback because any moment you might be called into the game and you have to be ready to, to go. And Paul says things like nighttime people, they're asleep. They're drunk. Asleep meaning they're careless. They're apathetic. They don't really care about the day and the fact that it's coming. Drunk meaning not just they're They've drinking too much alcohol. It means more like out of control and wild and reckless. Society's mantra today and back then was, hey, listen, if it feels good, then it's got to be right. But daytime people say, no, we're awake. We're vigilant. We're on guard. We're in tune. We're ready for the day. We're sober in Greek, meaning we're self-disciplined. We're in self-control of every area of our lives. Now, again, make no mistake, daytime people know how to enjoy life. Can I get an amen? You guys know how to enjoy life? It doesn't mean we like bury our heads in the sand and we just think, okay, I'm ready. It could happen at every moment. No, we live our lives out daily in joy, and yet we're always prepared. I, I would think of it this way. We will never have any regrets with the way that we are living the third way to prepare for the day of the Lord is to dress appropriately for the fight ahead. Of course, I'm referring to verse eight here. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Of course, this is all military metaphor, right? Of a Roman official. And Paul is saying, you're gonna have to fight if you wanna live as a daytime person. Meaning, listen, it's not naturally just going to happen that we become more and more like Christ because there's this things we're fighting against called our flesh and what Paul calls the world, right? Those parts of this world that are in opposition to the kingdom of God. If we don't fight, you're going to get sucked right into that. It's a different way of life. Now, one of the hardest things I'll just say to you as a pastor is watching this actually happen to people that you love, that you care for, that you did life together with, right? I mean, we bemoan the fact that so many high school students, they go off to college and then they get sucked in 
to this other way of life, the system of this world, this cultural thing. We are at war. As we talked about earlier, right? The call of Jesus on our lives is to live a holy life. To be sanctified is what we learned about. To be set apart from the world around us. We are called to live in a different way, the way of Jesus. And maybe you've gone away from that. The call for you this morning is, listen, you got to fight. If you want to live the way of Jesus, you're not going to drift into it because the magnet of the world is going to constantly be pulling you away from that. I want to be clear here. The enemy we fight, Paul says, is not the Roman Empire, even though the Jewish people were under the boot of Rome. In today's world, listen, it's not Afghanistan. It's not ISIS. It's not Russia. It's not a political party. The enemy we fight as followers of Jesus is what Paul calls the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we can't fight this with predator drones, M16s, Air Force carriers with nuclear weapons. You know what our weapons are? Faith, love, and hope. Faith is taking God at his word. You believe in him, and then you act out what you believe. You live as if Jesus is Lord, even when the way of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus don't always make sense to you or align with what our culture is saying is right and wrong. Love, self-sacrifice for the sake of another, an unswerving loyalty and allegiance to God. Hope, we've talked a lot about this in this series. Hope, not wishful thinking, not optimism, an assurance based on the promises and character of God that his way of life is the best way of life. So listen, let's get practical. We fight doubt and unbelief and cynicism and giving up and temptations to quit with faith. We fight hate and anger and violence and greed and sexual immorality with love. We fight despair and anxiety and depression and melancholy with hope. Following Jesus is a daily fight. Not a vacation, not a trip to the spa. I love how one pastor said, I think one of the reasons people quit following Jesus is because they think of it as a form of self-help or therapy or 10 steps to live an awesome life. There is some truth in that. As you follow Jesus, hopefully you become more mature and grow and become healthy and your life gets more awesome. But following Jesus is also a war. We used to say around here, we are declaring war on shallow Christianity. Why? Because nobody has ever in their lives drifted into mature Christianity. It's a fight. So we say today, right, we want to give ourselves fully to Jesus and his mission. We understand this is a daily decision, and the battle is won through faith, love, and hope. Finally, as we prepare for that day, Paul says we need to encourage one another while we wait. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. To me, I think about two things when I read this verse. Number one, the Christian fight is not a solo battle. We are not gladiators in the arena. We are assembled together as the church, as God's people, and we fight against this together. This is what we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? Do not give up meeting together. Encouraging each other for the day quickly approaches. We need one another in order to walk the way Jesus has called us to walk. Second, let's make no mistake. I can tell just the feeling in the room right now. 
this is heavy and this is dark. This is hard stuff, but Paul says it could actually encourage us. The day of the Lord is a good day for those of us who look forward to when he makes all things right. And so listen, life is hard right now. It's hard to be a follower of Jesus right now. Paul says, encourage each other. Don't forget, church. This life isn't the end. What's happening right here? God's in control. He's coming again. He'll be king. He'll make all things new. So don't give in to despair. Encourage one another until the day comes. So friends, as I close, I just really have one thought for us. The day of the Lord is coming. It's closer today than it was yesterday. Now, I know this isn't necessarily cheerful, but it's true, it's real. It's not a myth, it's not superstition, it's not fundamentalist hellfire and brimstone. It's true, and it's real. And so let me say a word to two groups of people who are in this room right now. If you are a follower of Jesus, I'll say this to you believers, if you're on your notes, don't be indifferent because your future is secure. There's still work to be done. We should just not have a sense of anticipation. We should have a sense of urgency for this day. Our knowledge of this day should produce in us a desire to live for Christ in holiness. And a passion should arise in us for those who don't yet know Jesus as king. I think every person who knows about the future is going to have a balanced view of how it should be, right? I should be intensely concerned about those who don't yet know Jesus as king. I don't know who said it. Somebody once said, those who are too heavenly minded are no earthly good. And sadly, I find this to be true, right? Sometimes when people get so engaged in trying to figure out when Jesus is returning, they don't even have any relationships with people outside of the church. It should be the complete opposite. The day of the Lord should be pushing us out, thinking of all of us as missionaries in this world, no matter where God has placed us. Maybe there's someone you love and care about, a friend or a neighbor, but you never actually had an honest, in-depth conversation with them about Jesus. Urgency. Maybe you're getting sucked into a kind of sleepwalking life. We can all do this, right? Wake up. Go to the gym, work, come home, eat dinner, go to bed, wake up, go to the, rinse and repeat. Maybe you're drifting into an unholy way of life, messing around with your boyfriend or girlfriend, gossip and backbiting. I don't need to get into all these things, but listen, there's an urgency. The day of the Lord is coming. Stay alert and clear-headed. Maybe your life group has become so ingrown and insular, it's time for you to branch out to encourage others. I'm not saying this to discourage us because there's a seriousness to it for sure, but I'm saying this because the day of the Lord has the potential to reframe how we live our everyday lives like nothing else does. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, what an odd day for you to come to church. But can we just talk honestly? It's a scary passage. There's no way around it. I'm not going to explain it away. I'm not going to water it down. It's there. Everything I've said is right here in front of you in God's word. And so to you, if you're an unbeliever, I would say don't be fooled because today seems calm. The Bible is clear. There's a day coming. And without Christ as your shelter and your protector and your savior, there's no escape. One day you and I are gonna stand before the throne of God and we will answer for everything in our life. And that day does not have to be scary. 
It can be a day of great joy if you are saved, if you are rescued, if you've been made righteous. And listen, this is what the gospel is. Jesus wants to do this for every person. It's what we read in verses 9 and 10. He came to die for you in your place to swap your life with his life to swap your unrighteous life with his righteous life, to swap your way of life, the world, and your flesh for his way of life, life in the spirit. You can be saved from the day of the Lord and judgment and destruction and wrath, but I would hate to just stop here. I don't think Jesus wants to scare people into the kingdom. So what I would also want to say to you is you can not only be saved from that day, you can be saved to something better today. If you're following on your notes, you can be saved from that day and to a better life today. What do I mean? Well, Jesus said, listen, I have come to give you life, life to the full. Life of joy and peace and meaning and significance and hope. And I think that's what every human being is craving for in their bones. Follow me and believe that you can have that life right here and right now. And when that day comes, I will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Now to end, I gotta be honest with you. When the schedule came out, when we put together the schedule and I saw I was preaching on this, I wasn't like, yes. But one of the reasons we teach through the Bible because we're forced to talk about stuff we may not choose to talk about on our own. I doubt I would have woken up on Monday morning and think, oh, what am I going to preach on this week? Judgment and wrath. But I'm glad we're committed to being Bible-based people because as a generation, we love to talk about the love of God and God is love, but we don't really like to talk about the fact that God is holy and just and he will judge. This is why people have a problem with the Old Testament. And yet... Jesus talks about the same things. So today, I'm just asking, would you confront your mortality? This doesn't have to be morbid. It doesn't have to be sad. I want you to think about the reality, though. The day of the Lord is coming, and that judgment is coming. So ask yourself, am I preparing myself today for that day? If you're falling on your notes, am I preparing myself today for that day? One of the ways we prepare ourselves for that day is something Jesus instituted that we call communion. He said, I want you to do this often to remember me. And part of what we're remembering isn't just what he did in the past, but what he's going to do in the future. In fact, I love how he describes this in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 22, verses 14 and 16, it says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now here's the part I want you to look at. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Which means we're going to eat it again with him. We're going to feast with Jesus at what is called the wedding feast of the lamb. And so as we take communion this morning, here's just a couple things to know. Whether you're a part of this church or not, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're welcome to participate in this with us. If you're here and you're just exploring, you're asking questions, we love that. We love having you here. We hope you feel welcomed and loved. But we would ask that you would let this pass on. We're going to try something a a little different, though. I want to just spend a little time reflecting with you. So take your cup or your chalice or whatever it's called. I just want you to close your eyes. 
And I just want you to picture and eagerly wait for this day. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light or a lamp or the light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.